Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She's a filmmaker best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. Norm Anderson Amandi is a daytime Emmy-nominated executive producer, show creator, and documentary filmmaker with credits on a wide variety of shows and networks. From Discovery's Shark Week to shows on TLC, the CW, CNBC, and most recently as creator of Prairie Dog Manor for National Geographic and Disney+. Plus. His award-winning feature documentary, The Donut Dollies, tells the story of brave women who volunteered in the war zones of Vietnam. It screened to capacity crowds at the Palm Springs International Film Festival and won the Best Documentary Feature Award at the GI Film Festival in San Diego. Norm, it is really a pleasure to have you join us today. And Heather, so glad you're going to be doing this interview today. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you oh, so much, Thank Claire. you so much. Yeah, thank you, Claire. And thanks, Norm, for being here. Um, for anyone who um, is, has never heard of the Donut Dollies, could you please explain who they were? Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Heather, and thank you again, both of you, for uh, for the opportunity to come on and chat and tell you a little more about the Donut Dollies. They, I like to say, are the the Donut Dollies are basically the most amazing women you've never heard of. Um, they were young American women fresh out of college, and they volunteered to go to Vietnam and Korea during the wars, basically living uh, living on bases, flying out to to see the troops on a daily basis, and um, their mission was to boost the morale of American GIs and sort of be a a living, breathing reminder of home. Yeah, I had never heard of them before, and seeing the archival footage, it was really fascinating. Um, so for anyone who hasn't seen your film yet, The Donut Dollies, could you summarize, please, a little bit about what the film's about? You bet. Um, well, my mom, I'm proud to say, was a donut dolly. And um, as a kid, I didn't really know what that meant, but it was um, something that was really important to her and I realized she had done something extraordinary but slowly I, I, it began to dawn on me that what she did do and, and basically having uh, committed to going to a war zone for a year as, as a young woman um, it just kind of blew my mind as I figured out what, what that meant or got a sense of what that meant but I wanted to I really wanted to sort of try to preserve her story and tell it because, you know, nobody, she didn't really, she's very modest and she hadn't really shared much about it. And most people really never had known or heard about the Donut Dolly. So we um, basically, I made a film about her and her best friend, uh, fellow Donut Dolly, Mary, who um, they went to Vietnam together. And then we brought them back almost 50 years later to, uh, 
to retrace their steps and figure out both what a Donadale was, what they did, why they did it, and um, what that meant in their lives. And it was really a, a long moving exploration to, to figure that out. Yeah, well, you did a great job in the film. It's, it's really fascinating. In the Thank first you. scene of the documentary, we're introduced to your mother, Dorset Anderson, who, as you mentioned, was a donut dolly. She was um, overseas from 1968 to 1969. And we get some insight into your life growing up, Norm, which was not exactly <laughs> standard. And I wonder if you could yeah. um, describe a little bit about your childhood home. Yeah, you bet. Um, I guess we were we sort of uh, lived off the grid before off the grid was cool. Uh, this was like in the early 80s, and uh, yeah, and kind of out in the boonies uh, without running water or electricity. Um, and it was sort of a combination of being uh, my folks wanting to be independent and also financially uh, motivated because it, it was just a you know we didn't have a ton of money back then, and uh, so we lived there off the grid. Off the grid, it was a, a warm and cozy life. Uh, filled with stories and laughter. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I was a very, very lucky kid, Um, but definitely felt a little bit different than a lot of my folks in the the towns and cities, a lot of my, uh, you know, friends and friends and acquaintances going from, from then on through my life. Your mom does talk a little bit about a generator that allowed you to watch, it sounds like not necessarily an entire TV show, but maybe part of one. And I find it really interesting that you ended up becoming a filmmaker and, and you know, generating content that's on TV when you didn't really have access that most people have yeah. um, in America, <laughs> you know, 24-7 now. Yeah, I think um, I was, um, I think it was a little bit of a, an exciting, extra alluring thing to, to see that glowing box of the television. And uh, it was always a bummer if the generator ran out of gas five minutes before the end of a show. But I think that it inspired me to one of the things that kind of pushed me towards filmmaking. And I'm uh, proud to say I've actually even, not only do I own a TV, but I've, I've been on TV. I actually got to be on Wheel of Fortune years ago and did well enough that Pat Stajek said that I was a uh, living proof that electricity is way overrated. So it's one of my proudest moments. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, we need some archival of that. Um, Do you think that there's any connection between your mother roughing it in Vietnam and then choosing to live off the grid? Yeah, you know, that's a a really good question. I hadn't really thought about that too much, but it it might have been. She she certainly did rough it in in Vietnam and also saw uh, what what a lot of the Vietnamese people had to, to live with and they, they were certainly in farther off the grid and had far less opportunities and amenities than she did or that we did growing up. Um, so that might've given her a different perspective and, um, and an appreciation. And I think my dad was also, uh, he had lived out in the world, but was kind of keen to get kind of just become a hermit and, and go to the, go to the woods. So we all, we all did that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess when you're a kid, you go where your parents take you, right? Uh, yeah. With regards to making the movie, you've already mentioned you want to preserve your mother's story and, and introduce a wider audience to the Donut Dollies, which is, a, you know, one of those untold stories. But was there any specific event that motivated you to decide that you were going to make this movie? Yeah, as a as a kid, before I really knew what it meant that my mom was in Vietnam. I, I 
had glimmers of, of that time. Like um, she had some mementos and one that sticks in mind was a, um, a little uh, like a, a envelope or letter opener that looked like a sword and it had this yellow lightning bolt on it, which I learned was the insignia of the 25th inventory, uh, Infantry Division, which is uh, in Kuchi, Vietnam, where one of the bases she was stationed at. And she held these things sort of with reverence and generosity because she let me as a kid look at them and even kind of kind of hold them and, and just bring them into to my room and, and experience them for myself. But they meant a lot to her. And and then then one day, basically, all of her memorabilia got destroyed and ruined. It was a lot of it was stored in a shed outside and in the heavy duty New England winters. The shed had basically collapsed under a lot of snow, and before she realized it, all of that memorabilia was pretty much irreparably destroyed. And I saw what a what a impact that had on her. It was really like losing a part of herself, and I didn't want that to happen to her stories. Um, and I felt I feared that was a possibility too. So that, I think that was really the impetus to start trying to document it and ask more about her stories and her time in Vietnam and uh, slowly kind of realize that one of maybe the best ways to do that would be to, uh, to start filming and putting together a documentary. So kind of that preceded my realization that I could become a filmmaker and maybe, maybe in a way this project really inspired me following that path. Well, I think it's super interesting, um, you know, that you pursued it because it is such a fascinating story. And it seems a lot of times like documentary filmmakers um, only go after the stories of celebrities or people who are just super, you know, notable in the public eye for one reason or another. And yet here within your own family, you had this super fascinating story that you were able to tell. So I think that's Great. Um, in the in the doc yeah in the documentary we see vintage advertisements um, for that the Red Cross posted when they were recruiting volunteers to be donut dollies, and they were seeking healthy single women aged 21 to 24 who were college gra- graduates to work in Vietnam for a year. And um, they made it seem like it was going to be a lot of fun. I think it even said something like the best year of your life or something. So right. now that, you know, now that you're, um, you know, you've made the movie and everything, you know more about it. How did you feel when you saw those vintage ads, knowing what these women were exposed to once they got there? Yeah, you know, it was, um, I think the first feeling kind of coming as a, as a filmmaker when we found these ads was, it was like a, a great find and we were excited to have, have discovered these authentic artifacts and I really got to give a shout out to my friend and co-producer, Jim Gardner, who was our archivist and many, many other hats uh, in the project. And he, he connected with so many donut dollies who generously shared their, their materials. And a lot of them fortunately had, had things that hadn't gotten destroyed uh, including, yeah, these vintage ads and um, this, uh, so, so it was great to have it, and then it was really interesting to see how, how an ad like this was uh, portraying and, and talking about the, the, the year. Um, I actually have, have it in front of me, and, yeah, talking about the job is very special. The work is rewarding. And occasionally there's a little bit about, like, yeah, there'll, there'll be some danger. You'll be flying out on helicopters and jeeps and boats and planes every day, but 
it'll be in accordance with military regulations. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it was maybe, uh, you know, yeah, in a way it was, yeah, it's very interesting to see how this is, this w- was portrayed. And I don't think anybody knew what they were getting into fully. And really even the, the Red Cross probably couldn't have anticipated the lifelong effects that these, this would have on the women that served as donut dollies. But it's, it's fascinating to look at these, these ads and we've gotten more of those on our, on our website because we keep finding more archival material and, um, yeah, they're real, real treasures to kind of see, see the, get a glimpse at that time. Yeah, the film it touches just a little bit on um, PTSD, which um, in the course of the film, um, there's a conversation with a veteran who discusses that and says at the time uh, it, it was just called being shell-shocked. But um, it's a good mm-hmm. point, the lasting impact on these women, some of whom experienced some pretty tragic things and, you know, lost friends that they had made and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about the long-term impact on them and that I don't think um, that was anticipated or, um, you know, I mean, it just wasn't even understood at the time. So, yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, the movie centers around a trip your your um, mom makes to Vietnam 46 years after being there as a donut dolly, and she makes the trip with her good friend, Mary Bo, who is also a donut dolly. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision to open the story up beyond just your mother's experience and include other donut dollies. Yeah, you bet. You know, there were... Um... There were 627 women who, who served as donut dollies in Vietnam and about, about 120 uh, also in Korea. And so we, we knew there were that many stories. Each woman we knew had a different and unique story. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I always wanted to tell my mom's story, but it felt like to, 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 to expand the scope and get a better, give a better sense of, of the donut dolly experience. We definitely always wanted to talk to and, and bring in other other women as well, and we were fortunate to have, I think, over a dozen that that are uh, featured in the film. But the definitely the co-star in the film is my mom's friend Mary, and they were uh, best friends in college. And once my mom found out about the program, she was very excited to do it and told Mary about it and convinced her to apply. And so they both. And Mary came from a uh, a military family. My, my mom, uh, to a lesser extent, her dad had been in World War II, but but uh, Mary's brother was in Vietnam and her father was a, a general. And so she, she signed up as well. And, and they, they both went to Vietnam together thinking also that it could be a, a great adventure they could have as friends, but they both got uh, separated basically as soon as they got into the country and really never saw each other. They were stationed on different bases and only got to reconnect afterwards. So we thought it would sort of be a fitting way to to bring closure to their their story as as lifelong friends to reunite them and uh, bring them back to vietnam together and also sort of as as a filmmaker you know as you know to have different storylines it was sort of uh, a and b stories we could follow my mom trying to track down a place that she had been stationed and then turn the focus to mary and hear about her experiences uh somewhere else and mary was very generous in her her uh sharing of her stories and and sadly she actually just passed away about um about four or five months ago so that's uh, bittersweet 
moment, but uh, feels good that she got to see the finished film and she was actually came up on stage with us when we won the uh, the award for best feature at the GI Film Festival, and uh, I'm proud that this is a, a enduring testament to her, as, as well as my mom and and to the other Dematales. I hope. Well, I'm I I apologize. I'm you know saddened to hear about this loss, and but I am glad to hear, as you Thank say, you. that she did get to see the finished film and and um, see it with an audience. So that's you know that's that's a you know terrific gift that you gave her in the movie your mother and mary as you mentioned they attempt to retrace their steps and return to the areas that they had stayed in during their service as donut dollies and along the way they meet a diverse group of people including both americans and vietnamese people and i was wondering approximately how many of these encounters were planned in advance and how many were just really spontaneous yeah, um, we we did as much as we could to kind of prepare and plan. And actually, my co-producer Jess and I were able to do a uh, a scouting trip to the Vietnam uh, the prior year, during which we also filmed some material uh, for our Kickstarter campaign that we, we did, which helped uh, help fund fund the film. And during that time, we met met a few people. We met we met a um, an expat who the gentleman Bob in the film who has a, a cafe in a town called Tuiwa and he was a great uh, resource and, and asset and ally for us and it, it was kind of we, we kind of jumped in and with a lot of hope and faith and really benefited from a lot of generosity from people both on camera and behind camera um, I would say that yeah as much as we planned we just knew we would have to kind of um, go, go forward, hoping, hoping for the best once we got there. And we did do it all by the book. We had, uh, you had to get all, obviously permits and permission from the Vietnamese government. And we actually had a minder slash government liaison with us the whole time. And, um, you know, some people had recommended we go under the radar, but we wanted to do it by the book. And we also had giant cameras. So that's kind of hard to, hard to hide. Uh, but, that uh, that turned out to be a great uh, experience. The gentleman Ving was uh, was also a camera guy, so he helped us do some filming and he held lights for us. And we had a, um, a producer from Vietnam as well on the ground, who who was great in you know introducing us to people. And sometimes it was really just knocking on a door and saying, Hey, do you mind if we do you mind if we talk to you or ask you about about this? It's like, did you ever? Hear of the donut dollies, or did you were you were you in Vietnam during during the late '60s, and what was your experience? Um, and then we had some serendipitous experiences. One woman uh, we discovered while we were there was a, a donut dolly who was an expat teaching English in a town, and we kind of missed the town. We missed her in the town where she was living, but we were able to coordinate uh, flying her up to the next town we were going to be in, and that was a great opportunity for. A, a pr- pretty special reunion between um, mom, my mom, Mary, and this woman, Wanda. And they didn't know each other in Vietnam, but uh, as we often found, there's like a, a real kinship and, and sisterhood and bond whenever Donut Dollies get together because they have that shared experience. Yeah, that certainly comes true. The trip is really bittersweet for both your mom and Mary. It's 
it's a mix of good memories and sad memories that come up for them. And uh, but it's also really clear that they really did um, enjoy the part of their job where they provided a shoulder for the soldiers to cry on when they needed that. And they run into a, a, a vet while they're over there and they they're you know, kind of experiencing that again as they're listening to his story. So mm. that being said, um, it's clear that, you know, most of the soldiers really appreciated the donut dollies and their service, and uh, and and that's clear. Um, but at the same time, the women were just vastly outnumbered by the men. And your mom does recount a story of one of the donut dollies being raped, which I mm-hmm. doubt was an isolated incident. And I just wonder what it was like to hear your mom talk about things like that that were pretty tough memories for her. Yeah, yeah, that it was definitely not um, not not as safe as those uh, vintage ads portrayed. And um, yeah, in addition to that instance, I'm sure there were uh, unreported things. And and I should add that there were actually three donut dollies who who died in Vietnam, um, uh, one of whom was actually um, murdered. So it, it was um, pretty pretty serious and um those those are traumatic things to have just heard about for the the donadales or the the you know some who were friends with these these women who who didn't make it home um and i definitely wanted to to not shy away from that in the film because didn't want it to make it seem like it was just a fun vacation adventure um for these women and that they really were brave and risking life and limb uh, a lot more than most people probably thought then, or even now when you hear about a woman going, going over there and telling, you know, making jokes and playing games and serving refreshments. A lot of people can kind of dismiss that perhaps, but they certainly shouldn't. And um, yeah, so I wanted to talk about that, that in the film. And I was grateful that my mom was open to, kind of opening up about things she knew about in that, in that time. Um, Cause uh, yeah, I think that, I think that's important to touch on. Yeah. The donut dollies, they wore these really cute little uh, pale blue uniforms that looked mm-hmm. sort of like a cross between an old fashioned nurse uniform and an old fashioned stewardess outfit. And they included a short skirt that showcased their legs so right. it really did make me question the intentions of um, the team that designed these uniforms because they certainly didn't look like they were being um, prepared to be sent into a combat zone. And, and someone does yeah. point out in the film that, that there was no front line in Vietnam, just everywhere was the front line. So um, it's, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, actually, partly that, that uniform um, or quote-unquote uniform of the dress was um, – it's kind of a, an ongoing joke about the hemlines, and usually that there were regulations that they were supposed to be below the knees, but basically as soon as people got into country, they would hem those skirts up above the knees. And part of that was practical because getting in and out of a, a Huey helicopter with a with a skirt that's below your knees is kind of tricky and dangerous. So part of it was uh, practicality, part of it was probably fashion and comfort. It was also super hot, <laughs> hot and humid there, but definitely seeing images. Uh, it's a little, it's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance to see to see that uniform and a bright-eyed young woman in a in a war zone. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that they hem them themselves up. That's that's interesting. That probably wouldn't be allowed these days. But uh, there is a scene right. in the movie where a helicopter pilot is kind of recounting landing in a way, sort of intentionally to blow their skirts up. And it really um, is reminiscent of the Mar- you know, the the iconic Marilyn Monroe image where you see her skirt yeah. blowing up in the air a bit. That's so. A yeah, part of Mary's experience that is different than your mother's is that she was exposed to Agent Orange. So for anyone who may not be familiar with what that is, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what Agent Orange was and how it impacted the people who were exposed to it. Yeah, certainly. Um, so Agent Orange was uh, uh, used as basically a, a defoliant in in Vietnam to to kind of clear the the, the jungle canopies and, and um, expose the enemy and, and uh, be a way to, yeah, to see, see the quote unquote bad guys. And, and uh, it was used widely around, around Vietnam and stored at different bases and people didn't realize right away um, that in addition to killing plants, it caused major damage uh, in the short term and long term to anyone who was or to many people that were exposed and not even directly exposed sometimes to um, on you know unborn children for instance and that's an ongoing uh, an ongoing tragedy in Vietnam so um, a couple of the places that Mary were stationed uh, had had a lot of agent orange around there and and she definitely got got exposed to it um, which unfortunately um, her doctors think led to uh, a cancer that she had been dealing with for the last uh, 10 years or so of her, of her life. Um, she thinks it also might've been why she couldn't actually have children, which was something she always really wanted to, to have. So yeah, that's just a, a tragedy of the war that is ongoing. And one of the scenes in the film, we uh, met with a, a North Vietnamese soldier and his family. And he was, uh, part of his job was basically growing crops um, out in, in the wilderness. And he got doused directly with Agent Orange uh, multiple times by American planes flying over. And he was fine, but unfortunately his uh, child who was born later is severely impacted and, uh, uh, paralyzed basically from that and we, we met him as well and I, I thought it was important to to mention that and and talk about the fact that people uh, on both sides were affected by this chemical that never really yeah. should have been used there yeah and just for clarity um as you mentioned it was a weed killer so used to thin out the um jungle and so forth so that pilot could see better have better visibility from above and they also in some cases drop this chemical from airplanes or helicopters perhaps um so it would just fall down and it was not escapable for the people who were below so yeah yeah the the implications are definitely serious and um and and it's another thing that just was poorly understood at the time unfortunately so yeah um, and a lot of the a lot of veterans are still suffering from those effects, from the effects of Agent Orange exposure today. 
Yeah. So all of the men who served in Vietnam who were included in the film point out that although the donut dollies were only volunteers, they also put themselves in harm's way and their service was appreciated and they think they deserve to be honored and that it's long overdue. And I wondered how that made you feel. Yeah, it felt, it felt gratifying personally to, to hear that and, and uh, really I mean, the most important thing is having, you know, my mom and Mary and the other donut dollies hear that and get a little bit of uh, the appreciation and thanks and love that they deserve. And, yeah, they don't, they don't really necessarily feel they deserved a lot of thanks. They didn't go there to, for, for the praise. They went there to help, help others. And um, they definitely don't think of themselves as heroes, but I do think they are heroes. Um, so I think, um, yeah, as, as one of the guys said, and as you quoted, you know, it, it is long overdue that they get some, that the Donut Dollies get some, some kudos. And um, I think they, they still deserve an awful lot more than they've, uh, they've gotten so far. So hopefully with the film, the more people that see it, the more people can, uh, can reach out and hug a Donut Dolly, thank a Donut Dolly, and, and just know who they are and what they did. Yeah, uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering um, if there are any specific stories or examples you have of how making the trip to Vietnam personally impacted your mom and her friend Mary in terms of, you know, bringing closure and having this ability at least a little bit to retrace their steps. Did they, um, I don't know, maybe off camera or anything, did they share anything about what that was like? Yeah, you know, um... It was a for my mom and for Mary. It had really been a, a lifelong dream to go back to Vietnam, but for a lot of different reasons, for both of them, it just was never possible. First, for for a long time, it was politically impossible. But then, you know, when Vietnam started to open up, it was still financially challenging, and every both of them had full lives. And Mary was. Uh, teaching kids in, in kindergarten for years and years. And, and my mom was raising two kids and working full time. And uh, literally Vietnam felt like a, a world away. And it, it didn't, even for, for me, it felt like a really daunting thing to pull together the resources and uh, just commit to getting back to, to Vietnam or getting to Vietnam and making this project happen. But I think um, I remember vividly when we actually got onto the airplane. I, I flew over from San Francisco with Mary and my mom to, uh, to document them traveling, kind of retracing their flight from San Fran originally to, to landing in Vietnam. And uh, it just was a huge relief just sitting back in that seat, knowing that we, whatever was happening, we, we got, we're, we're going to Vietnam and we're going to make this film. And then, yeah, getting to be there and see what they did, uh, sort of see the impact on them every day in Vietnam was really moving and special for me and the whole crew. And I do really feel that it was very, very powerful for my mom and, and Mary to be there. And they, there was a sense of uh, completion and closure in, in a lot of ways. And also it was just a, a sort of a, a beginning of opening up and talking about this experience. Um, they obviously did it on camera for quite a while, but there's also other women we've met who had never talked about their experience in Vietnam from the day they came back in the late sixties to, to the present. So uh, for them, actually the film 
was an impetus or kind of a, a catalyst for, for opening up and talking about their experiences and starting to, I don't think, I think it would be inaccurate or naive to say that there was full closure or everything was satisfied for, from a mom or Mary or anyone from seeing this film, but it definitely kind of, kind of thawed things out and, and opened up some opportunities for talking and sharing and, and healing, which I think is an ongoing experience. Yeah, I think, you know, everything you said, it's very interesting how, um, you know, time passes and, and uh, people have these pivotal events that have happened in their life. And then when they're able to go back and um, reflect on it with the passage of time, it, it can be very profound. So it's part mm. of what makes it a great topic for a movie. Um, as an independent filmmaker, what was your biggest challenge making the film? I have a guess, but I would love to hear <laughs> what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, I think uh, in, in a way, I think uh, independent filmmaking is uh, a series of challenges linked together by hope, <laughs> stick to and maybe uh, some stubbornness uh, or foolishness. But so, yeah, I think I mean, I think the first big challenge was getting the critical mass of committing um, to making the film and building, pulling, basically pulling together the team because I realized that wasn't going to be able to do it on my own. So teaming up with the, the two friends I mentioned, Jess and Jim, was really, was really critical. And then, of course, the challenge of raising the funds to, uh, to do it. I don't know if that was the part you were going to guess. But, <laughs> yeah, funding is challenging. And then, then you've made the film uh, or you have all this footage, but what are you going to do with that? And how are you going to put that in, into – how are you going to boil down 100 hours or more of footage into a, uh, a manageable length? Edit it, and then and then you got a film. What are you going to do after that? How do you get it out to the world? <laughs> so, it's been challenging, but very rewarding. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of challenges, and um, you're one of those filmmakers that was wrapping up right in the you know earlier stages of the pandemic, where it mm -hmm. was especially tough for filmmakers to get their their movies out there. And um, actually, yeah. in there's a point in the film where your mom. Um, says you started filming her 20 years ago or something. And I was wondering, is that, have you been piecing the film together for that long when you started filming her right after college? Was it specifically for this film or were you just kind of filming and then, you know, uh, maybe some of it ended up um, being incorporated into this? Yeah. it's uh, a good question. I think, Definitely. So the, the first bit of film was from, yeah, 1997 or 98. And that was, uh, my mom had found two journals from Vietnam, which miraculously hadn't been destroyed or lost over the years. Um, and she had had, she had had them wrapped up since the seventies and it, and she was ready to kind of open them. And I was, I just had an instinct there that like, that's a special moment that needs to be seen and, and documented because who knows what stories and, uh, you know, who, who knew what was in that, that wrapped up journal. So I did have an old high eight millimeter camera that I had bought uh, and I, I filmed that. Um, and that was the uh, official filmed beginning of what has become over 20 years of a, like an on-camera conversation. And I definitely, I think somewhere early on, it dawned on me that I would love to turn it into a documentary. Um, but it was either on the back burner or I just didn't know how to, how to pull it all together at that point, but I felt better to document it and, and 
hand it off to my future self, who hopefully would be able to figure out what to do with it. And then 2005, we did a, there was a reunion that, that came together for a bunch of Donut Dollies, and I filmed a bunch of stuff on DV cam tape there, which is, was a fancy format at the time, and now it's, you know, obviously not, not so fancy, but I filmed a bunch of great footage with my mom and Mary in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I kept salting away uh, nuggets, and then, yeah, eventually uh, we really sat down to try to make a, make a complete project out of it. And how uh, you did mention funding as one of the challenges. How did funding come together to complete the film? Yeah, it was definitely a, a patchwork quilt of funding, but the real first um, and, and biggest kind of uh, injection of fuel into our tanks was we decided to go the crowdfunding route. And uh, my co-producer, Jeff, and I, what we did, a, we did a first um, attempt at a Kickstarter before we went to Vietnam. And we got close to our goal, but we didn't quite make it. So then we kind of reassessed and and uh, uh, Jess was able to fund a trip for us to go to Vietnam and do some preliminary filming and, and put together a more polished Kickstarter campaign. And that was successful. And so on the, on the, the wings of that and our couple hundred of, um, donors or so, then plus uh, some, some grants and personal investments and all of that, um, some credit cards that are still warm, we, we pulled it all together. And along the way as well, there were really a lot of folks that, that uh, you know, dedicated and donated time and effort. Like our, our cinematographer uh, who's worked on Marvel movies and actually helped uh, basically come up with the idea for shooting on DSLR cameras back in the day. He volunteered his time um, to go uh, three weeks in Vietnam and basically hang off the back of a scooter to get all these crazy cool shots. And there's so many stories like that of people dedicating a generous amounts of time and talent to make the film possible. And I think it was really largely because meeting my mom and Mary and other Donut Dollies really was inspiring. And they were so generous in what they did for our country and for the troops um, that we all wanted to do what we could to, to thank them and pay them back in a way. You, you mentioned a scooter, and I must say, I did wonder how you got some of the, you have some really great tracking shots. Was someone filming from a, on riding a scooter and filming? <laughs> yeah, so this is a kids don't try this at home example. But yeah, there were some some shots where uh, my friend Jess was driving the scooter and our DP Joey was hanging off the back with a big heavy FS7 Sony camera. And, and at other points, we were kind of leaning out the doors of a, of a van. Um, <laughs> there could be a whole making of story that would be a little, little frightening. Like when I almost fell off the yeah, edge of the 40 foot tall concrete embankment, but that's another story. Yikes, yikes. Well, you definitely got great <laughs> tracking shots, so kudos to you for that. You. Do, do you have any, you've already given some great advice, really, but do you have any advice for first time filmmakers who are trying to, you know, they have a passion project like this and they're trying to make it happen? I, I think so many people just don't understand how tough it can be and, um, I think these days now a lot of people have the perception, oh, why don't you just make a movie with your iPhone, you know, it'll be great, and, and that it's so easy. Right. But it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts, and there can be a lot of expense with post and everything. So I wonder what your pointers would be for, um, for new filmmakers. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it is amazing what the technology 
can can do these days, but it's definitely not all about the technology. Um, I think first and foremost, yeah, ha- having an idea that you're passionate about and also really thinking about the team uh, that you need to make the film because it does, like they say, it takes a village to make, make a film. Um, don't try to do it yourself. You, you could potentially, but um, team up with other passionate people that want to tell stories. And um, yeah, you know, I think that that works so well and also count on it being, it's going to take longer and be a lot harder than you think. <laughs> like this has been that 20 plus year labor of love. I, I hope my next films aren't going to be quite that long, but it's yeah, a huge amount of time and effort and um, got to, Gotta gotta want to do it. Also, I would say don't forget about sound. <laughs> in our small but mighty crew in Vietnam, there were times where, you know, we, we didn't have a dedicated sound operator, and there were times where uh, that was part of my job. And there was one one scene where uh, the, the mics weren't recording, and uh, that that hurts. So don't forget the technical stuff either. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. People, I think, new filmmakers sometimes prioritize picture over sound, but um, they forget that um, if you don't have sound, you're in big trouble, and you can often use audio and pair it with different images, but um, if you have the images and no sound, uh, you know, doesn't 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 work so well. But um, yeah. I'm also wondering, can you tell us, I know you're just in the early days of getting the film out there, but um, is there, are there any venues coming up, places people can see the film now? Yeah, we have a, a couple festivals coming up that are um, on our website, DonutDollies.com, and um, we're actually doing some self-distribution via Vimeo. You can also go to our website to to get, get to that and, and rent or, or stream the film. We're working on a, a DVD as well. And we've had some really great connections and success with uh, sharing the film at conferences. Um, we have a, a big one coming up later this spring, uh, the Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association. And we're going to screen the film there live. And a lot of times we're able to coordinate bringing a, a real donut dolly who's in the area to, to participate in the screening and in Q&A. So, we're doing kind of a new hybrid uh, self-distribution, obviously still open to, to other opportunities, but one way or the other, we're, we're, uh, we're getting the film out there. And uh, it's been pretty gratifying to hear the, to see the reaction. That's great. I'm so glad to hear you're doing that. And that, that sounds really um, fantastic that you're able to bring other donut dollies in for Q and A's. I bet they really enjoy that. I um, yeah. I always hesitate to ask this to people who've just finished the you know huge ongoing passion project like this and then they're still getting it out. But I do want to give you the opportunity if there's anything uh, you know besides distributing the film, which is a full time job. If there's anything else you're <laughs> working on right now or starting to launch that you want to share, I want to give you the opportunity. Although I know sometimes people are very protective of their new ideas and they're not ready to share, but I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything else you may be working on? Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. I um, always have a million ideas in, in the hopper. And uh, uh, one thing we're developing is, uh, is like a scripted narrative, uh, narrative series about the Donut Dollies because there's just so many wonderful stories about them. So hoping to, to explore and develop that in, in the new year. And, um, yeah, I think um, other than that, 
focusing largely on, on getting this, this film out as much as possible. Well, I think the scripted idea sounds great. In my mind, of course, what comes up is MASH, but with the, the cute powder blue uh, donut dolly uniforms that show off their legs. So I think yeah. that could be, you know, a lot of potential there, a lot of commercial appeal. So best of luck with that. Uh, and could you uh, please share your social media handles for the film, um, of course, or if you have private ones as well, and um, – you know, the website for the movie, personal website, anything you want to share so people can uh, follow along if there's certain hashtags you're using, uh, anything like that. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, we are we have a pretty pretty big and robust uh, Facebook community at um, slash The Donut Dolly with a, a bunch of folks and a, a kind of a cool amount of uh, media and content on there. We have also a little... Uh, YouTube channel, which we're going to build more onto. And the real kind of the nexus for all things about the movie is DonutDollies.com, where uh, we also have a, 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 a written series of about 60 articles uh, where women, additional Donut Dollies, share their story uh, in their own words. And this is called the Donut Dolly Detail. But there's some wonderful stories there, and we're actually hoping to, to uh, get more stories from, from additional women and some of the veterans too that that experienced them. So that's uh, that's a great place to check out to also keep up with the movies, uh, the news about the movie. So DonutDollies.com and Facebook at the DonutDollies. Those would be the best places. Gosh, yeah, that sounds like there's tons of great content you're putting out there. That's exciting. It's it's great that you're preserving these stories. Is there anything you. else um, you would like to add that I haven't asked you so far? Thanks so much. No, I think. Um, I think we covered a lot of things. I just hope that people come away from maybe this this chat and and from the film knowing a little more about the donut dollies, and it's well worth learning more about them. And um, I, I will say, with the film, you know, it's, you will laugh and you will cry, and uh, you will come away having having learned something about some pretty amazing women. So uh, I hope more people can check it out, and really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share the film with you. Thanks very much for for watching it twice <laughs> yes and and thanks for all of your sacrifices making the film i know just i know firsthand how hard it can be to to pull off a passion project that you're self-funding and claire uh i wanted to give you the opportunity if you have any final question you would like to ask norm you know norm i i found it intriguing when you mentioned that you uh were working on some new uh hybrid uh self-distribution uh, methods as well for film. And, uh, mm. oh, I'd really like to hear about that. I, I, we, we just have just a, a moment left. Is there anything you can share about that that might be useful for us? Yeah, you know, we, we um, took a, uh, a class earlier this year and um, about, about this because there's so many new ways to get the film out there and have more, more kind of control and autonomy about it. Um, because it's a, there's so many films and it's just hard to get to the big players, but on your own, you really can do a lot. Again, taking a team and thinking, finding your affinity audiences and thinking outside the box on how to do it. But yeah, I could uh, maybe share some links and uh, share, share more about what we're, what we're doing, but it's a really exciting time and in a lot of ways, a, a great time for independent filmmakers to hold on to their material and, and get it out there. So it's possible. That's very encouraging. 
Yes, very encouraging. So perhaps they can learn more about that on your website. Yes, absolutely. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. It was uh, really inspiring, though, to hear about the, uh, the amazing spirit of these women and your, um, your journey as well. Well, thanks so much, Claire and Heather. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank okay. you. Thanks to both of you, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Take care and bye-bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.